After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. We've got a lot to cover after a busy week six of college baseball around the country. We'll get into Arkansas's decisive series sweep at Mississippi State, cementing Arkansas as the number one team in the country. Talk about Jack Leiter uh, flirting with uh, another no-hitter. Got a lot to wrap up around the SEC some exciting series in the Pac-12 and Oregon State. Speaking of no-hitters, Oregon State threw one of those. And we'll get to uh, a big weekend in Conference USA as they got underway uh, with, with conference play this weekend. So a lot to talk about here. But first, the Baseball America College podcast is presented by Repsoto. Repsoto has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Repsoto data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, busy weekend uh, of college baseball around the country, like I said, and uh, we're here to talk about Stephen F. Austin sweeping McNeese State. What a stunner in the Southland, man. That's, that's, uh, that was surprising. You know, McNeese, I thought the most talented team in the Southland, certainly among the oldest, if not uh, if not the oldest in the conference. A lot of that team was in a regional a couple of years ago. Uh, they played pretty well early in the season. So, yeah, big, big stunner there. And it's, it's looking increasingly like, look, you know, the Southland Conference is always really crowded in the middle of the league. There's always like three games of difference between fourth place and 11th place in that league it's just one of those conferences but this year uh, you know it might be unless somebody like southeastern louisiana really starts to run away with this thing it's looking like it might be the kind of year when anybody can win it and the uh, the battle to get into the conference tournament is going to be fierce as ever and there's a decent chance that a team that, that we thought of as being pretty good in that league might miss out so that'll make it fun it will not necessarily uh make it better for the southland conference in terms of uh, I mean, at this point, at-large bids are probably a pipe dream, but even beyond that, putting the type of, you know, the opportunity to have the type of team that can really make a run in regionals, uh, it certainly is not great for that, however. And it is uh, an interesting race, interesting series this weekend at Southeastern with, uh, I think it's McNeese. Anyway, uh, let's uh, let's get to this, this matchup here of... Arkansas and Mississippi State. It was number one versus number two for the 14th time in the regular season uh, in the history of the Baseball America Top 25. And Arkansas left absolutely no doubt, Joe. They sweep the series at the new dude. 
they just were dominant all weekend. They outscored Mississippi State 25 to 11. Um, they rarely trailed. They it, it was just a comprehensive beating. And the only game that was really particularly close at all was the finale on Sunday, but Arkansas was able to close out a 6-4 victory and, and complete the sweep. And with that, Arkansas is now 8-1 against top 25 teams. All eight of those wins have come – or sorry, uh, six of those eight wins have come away from Ballmwalker Stadium. And when we talk about top 25 wins, like we generally mean teams that were ranked in the top 25 at the time, Arkansas also owns a series win against Louisiana Tech, which this week moved into the top 25, but wasn't ranked when when Arkansas took two out of three against them. So no matter how you want to look at it, Arkansas at this point has the best, they've had the best season of any team in the country. Uh, They're number one in strength of schedule right now, a little early to really start talking about that, but there's, it's clear that every team on their schedule has, has been a good one. Even the two Ohio Valley teams, Murray state and Southeast Missouri state, they're playing well in OVC play. They're those, those series sweeps are looking even better now than they did at the time. And I just, I continue to be very impressed by what Arkansas has done. And so much so that, it is time for me uh, to admit that I was wrong and to apologize for ever doubting the Hogs. I, I was I was off uh, in the preseason when we ranked them number fourteen, and I was concerned about the starting rotation and how they would replace Heston Kerstad and Casey Martin. I was I was wrong a week ago when I gave Mississippi State the edge because they were at home and because they had what I thought to be the better starting rotation. I, uh, I was wrong. Arkansas, uh, I should never have doubted the Hawks. And uh, I, I, again, just very, very impressed by what they, what they did, not only this weekend, but throughout the season to this point. Yeah, well, I mean, we both picked Mississippi State, and there was, obvi- there was justification for it, you know, I, I, looking at it from the outside in. And now, now that we've seen it, uh, we know that, you know, we were just, we ended up being incorrect about that. And that happens sometimes. You're gonna, you're gonna guess wrong when you, when you, or sometimes in the prognostication business and that's, that's the way it goes. But we did get the clarity that we talked about in terms of knowing which team is clearly the, the best in college baseball right now. And, and that's Arkansas with what they did. And, and look, I mean, I think there are still reasons to, to have concerns about the starting rotation. It's just that, because it's not like outside of, you know, they, they got a good start from Wicklander, but outside of that, it's not like the starting pitching was outstanding for Arkansas throughout the weekend. It just wasn't important because everything else was clicking so well. And, if that's the formula, that's the formula. And they, they prove they can, they can win that way. It was the offensive performance that we've kind of been waiting for, especially in that opener. I, I, I think it was really important the way they came out in that opener and, you know, scoring runs the way they did and not just because they put a three spot in the first, but that it was on home runs. Um, you know, I think was important because it really set, I think it set the tone for really the entire series. And you're right. It was, not a particularly competitive series, you know, it depends on how you slice it. Like the third game to your point looks competitive, but like, wasn't really like Arkansas puts up a five spot in the fourth and then, you know, just kind of holds them off from there. The middle game was competitive in that 
Mississippi State led until the fifth inning, but then from the fifth inning on, Arkansas just boat raced them the rest of the way. So overall, just not really particularly competitive. Uh, good bullpen work in spots for for Arkansas too, and that's going to be the key. If, if they're not going to be the team that's able to run out and be confident in, you know, these two guys are going to give us six or seven, and our Sunday guy is going to give us five or six although they, they have done that in spots, but if, if you're, gonna, you're not going to be the type of team that can consistently get that, you're going to have to get that kind of work from your bullpen. So, you know, you see the work that Peyton Paulette gave them in the opener, you know, Kevin Copps gave them in the, in the second game, uh, you know, what Jackson Wiggins did in, in the final game as part of a, a group effort there. That's the kind of stuff they're going to have to get if they're not going to get six or seven innings from the starters. And if the offense hits like it did over the weekend, it really isn't going to matter a ton because that's the way they're going to win games. So, this looked like a pretty repeatable performance for Arkansas, which now suddenly looks to your point, looks like, um, you know, the type of team that, uh, you know, is, is one of these, you know, kind of traditional Arkansas teams that we, that we've seen in recent years that, you know, very well could end the season in Omaha playing for national title. Look, here's the thing. They're, they're never going to be that team with seven inning starters. This is not a conventionally built baseball team. This is a 21st century 2021 built baseball team. And, I give Dave Inhorn a lot of credit for doing that. You know, here's a guy that has won a ton of baseball games in his career. And if you go back, like he was doing things, you know, the more conventional way, like earlier in, in his career, like not surprisingly, but he has made an adjustment. And honestly, this is something that I've, should be digging into more and, and talking to DVH about and, and, and writing about, but they, it, what I see in Arkansas is what you see from a lot of teams in the big leagues right now. They're, they're going to run a starter out there for as long as they can, but they're not asking anyone in the rotation to give them seven innings. That's not to say that they're going to say, no, don't do that. They're not quite raised level on that. Um, you know, Zebulon Vermillion had thrown eight innings in his last two starts before the Mississippi State series. And uh, but but Lyle Lockhart and whoever they pitch on Friday and this week it was Patrick Wicklander. And I would guess that he'll get another go at that because he only gave up one run in five innings. Um, but they're not they're not looking for that. They're looking for as much as they, you can get out of a starter and then turn it over to this ultra deep bullpen and let them let it ride from there with a whole bunch of arms. Uh, you talked last, uh, you know, in the preview podcast, Joe, about how they were dangerously close to being able to go 27 different pitchers for all 27 outs. And they, uh, they maybe don't run quite that deep, but they, they run real deep out there and they're, they're going to let it fly in the bullpen when they need to. And then offensively, they're a team that doesn't have that top 10 draft pick, um, Right now in in the lineup, you know, there's no J.J. Blade, there's no Austin Martin, there's no South Freilich or Adrian Del Castillo anchoring this thing. It's just a bunch of guys that all hit pretty well and can run the ball out of the ballpark. And they, you know, Nate Thompson does a really good job with their hitting there. And that's the guy that, you know, built the the Missouri State teams with with Jake Berger and and all of those guys that, that made the, the super regional runs a few years ago. And, you know, they do the launch angle stuff and, and all the rest of the, the more modern hitting, hitting type thing. And, you know, they just, 
that they're they're rolling. They have the best defense in the SEC, maybe in the country. There are other teams that are like that are good that are fielding with slightly higher fielding percentages than Arkansas is. Oregon and, and Notre Dame both rank really highly in, in fielding percentage nationally, but Arkansas leads the SEC with a 984 fielding percentage. You'd be hard pressed to find a better backbone than Casey Opitz, Robert Moore, Jalen Battles, and Christian Franklin defensively. Those guys all are really, really high-end defense defenders up the middle. Uh, the guys on the corners do a fine job as well. And, you know, it's uh, – I, I just – I'm really impressed. I, I think it's it's not what we usually see from our national title contenders in college baseball. If you look at what Ole Miss and Vanderbilt are – this is not that if you look at this Texas tech, you know, maybe does some similar things pitching wise, but they, they're still built differently offensively. I feel like, and uh, I I think Arkansas, again, I I want to dig into this more, but the more I see from Arkansas, the more I think that this is the team that's built closest to a big league team in, in roster construction and in philosophy of, of any team in the country right now. And you look at the stat line on offense, it, it really kind of is a modern offense is a good way to put it because you look at the batting average is like, and it says 278. And so you're kind of like, oh, okay, well, that's not bad, but it's also not going to be anywhere close to being among the leaders in the country. But then you look and the team is getting on base at a 392 clip. They've now hit 40 home runs in 22 games. It was obviously a big weekend for the long ball for them. So that helped a lot. But, you know, even when you look at the fact that they, they're hitting Braden Webb leadoff in all three games and he's hitting 125, but He's putting together good at-bats. Uh, he's getting on base at a 382 clip. And I think they're also betting just a little bit on, hey, he's not going to be hitting 125 all year. But, you know, I think a lot of teams would be more inclined to pull the plug on a leadoff hitter hitting 125. But looking at the fact that he's getting on base and having those kind of at-bats keeps him in, in that spot. And, you know, that comes with also a decent number of strikeouts, really relatively high strikeout numbers here. Uh, no one player has what I would call an alarming strikeout rate, but they are striking out a little bit as a team. So you are going to get some of that as well, but it does uh, to your point, look a lot like the offenses that we have become accustomed to see at accustomed to seeing at the, uh, at the next level. So uh, yeah, fascinating little, little thought there because um, I hadn't really thought of it necessarily that way, but I, I do think that is, that is what we're seeing here play out in front of us. They, um, not, not only did, did we see this as Arkansas you know, taking it to Mississippi State, like there was, there was no hiding it. Uh, Chris Lamonis said after the third game that Arkansas had manhandled them all weekend. Uh, that, that's literally the quote. We got manhandled by a good team in all phases of the game. We got beat, and that includes coaching. We got beat in every phase. And I chose, so look, let's look at this from, from the dog's perspective. They came into this as statistically the best pitching staff in the country. Um, the rotation of Christian McLeod, Will Bednar, was, and, and Jackson Fristo was really highly touted. They had, still have, um, four or five really, really high-end bullpen arms that had not been gotten to pretty much all year. That definitely changed this weekend uh it was you know the wind was blowing out at least on saturday uh but arkansas just they just hammered mississippi state pitching all weekend long 
and the Mississippi State offense could not keep up against a pitch, a, a really good Arkansas pitching staff. It, it should certainly be said, but this is this is a Mississippi State offense that we talked about as not being super high high profile either, and like they were just kind of doing enough throughout most of the season, and they 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 hadn't really clicked yet, still haven't clicked yet, and there are a lot of guys if you look in the lineup that aren't that are veterans that aren't really doing what you would expect them to be doing. And that, that definitely came home to roost this weekend against Arkansas. So Joe, where, where do the Bulldogs go from here? You know, Chris Limonis says they've got a good team. They just didn't show up this weekend. I guess, are you buying that or do you see more reasons for concern in Starkville? No, I, I think I'm, I think I'm buying that because you know, if, if, if we really think Arkansas is the best team in the country, and right now it seems pretty clear that they are based on what they've done, then these weekends are – Arkansas is going to do this to teams. And is it surprising when they do it to the team that was number two in the country and that we thought really highly of? Sure. But I don't see it as necessarily a reason why we need to fundamentally change the way we think about Mississippi State. I think to some degree we, we always thought this type of outcome could be on the table, right, because we knew that there was latent potential – in the Arkansas offense and boy, it came out kind of all at once and no one really came out unscathed except for Layden Sims, who was very good in the Sunday game. But outside of that, you're right. I mean, it was the Arkansas offense just kind of pounding Mississippi state pitching, but I'd say talk to me again, if we talk two, three weeks down the road and some other team has done this to Mississippi state, maybe not to the extent of a sweep, but you know, maybe let's revisit if that kind of thing happens again, because maybe then it's a little more of a concern. I have a, I have, if you're, forcing me to choose one side or the other, I'd be a little more concerned about the offense. And it's kind of different. The interesting thing is some of the raw numbers here don't look a lot different than what Arkansas's offense is doing. The difference is Arkansas just hitting with a lot more pop and you can bail yourself out of a lot of situations if you're able to hit the three run homer. And, you know, it's, it's amazing how, you know, you're in some of those clutch hitting situations and the, the difference between a three run homer and a a single that loads the bases and the next guy strikes out, like how much of a difference that ends up making over time to be able to bail you out of some of those types of situations. So I'm a little more concerned about the offense versus the pitching staff, just because there's guys in that lineup having a nice year there. I don't know that there's really anybody, especially when you consider that their best guy has been Tanner Allen, but he's done this before. Like it doesn't feel like they've really had a breakout guy and maybe that's still coming but that's a little bit of a concern for me, even beyond just where the numbers is. I don't, I'm not really sure exactly who this offense runs through. And I mean, it's Tanner Allen and Cameron James and like, basically that's about it. Yeah. And like Luke Hancock is hitting some home runs and you know, he's got and getting out base at a good clip, but he should be included in that too. Yeah. We talked about his absurd walk numbers on the, I think it was on the preview podcast. So there are some guys having nice years, but like I said, I didn't, I don't see the breakout. They don't have like a, to use a West coast example. Like there's not a Kenyon Yovan here where it's like, well, can't pitch to that guy um, because he's so much a part of what they do offensively. So um, I'm a little more concerned offensively, but all that said, like I said, let's talk in a couple of weeks when they're not playing the number one team in the country, if things start to really get sideways on them. But I think this is kind of the, the team that, that we thought they were, and they, they had a bad weekend to um, Chris Malonis's point. Yeah. I think the concern is definitely warranted offensively. Um, coming into the weekend, I thought that the offenses were in a similar spot and I think that they are kind of built similarly. Uh, again, Arkansas, Mississippi State, they don't have 
top 10 high-end premium position players right now. Christian Franklin at Arkansas looked like Superman this weekend, and he may still well be a first-round draft pick. Robert Moore is probably a first-round draft pick next year. Tanner Allen is super experienced veteran college hitter, done an awful lot, played for the collegiate national team. Uh, he'll ultimately be a fine draft pick, even if he's not a first rounder. And Cameron James probably develops into something pretty, pretty darn good by the end of his career. But again, these are not, these are not top half of the first round players, I don't think. And, uh, so they need a lot of production. And the the difference between the teams this weekend offensively was A, the depth that Arkansas showed, and B, the quick strike potential with a barrage of home runs from up and down the lineup. And until Mississippi State develops either one of those things, they are going to be in a little bit of trouble offensively. Scotty Dubrul has not hit the way that he hit at Jacksonville. Um, you know, that, that grad transfer has not, has not gone particularly smoothly. He's hitting 250. Um, Rowdy Jordan has played a ton of games for Mississippi State. He's hitting 233 right now. Josh Hatcher, similar boat, 229. And, yeah, to your point, Joe, no one has really emerged to say, like, okay, if the experienced guy isn't going to do it, like, I'll do it. Cameron James is the closest thing to that, and he's having a totally fine season, but it's not – it's not an unbelievable breakout year. So they're going to need to shore that up. I think the pitching staff probably is going to get back to doing what they were doing when they get away from facing an offense like Arkansas. Um, I, I, I would be much less concerned about that as well. Now, that said, like things need to get cleaned up there because it wasn't, it wasn't great. And if, uh, if they aren't going to have the pitching this year, like, like the, the hitting seems like it's never going to be the, what, what's guiding this team. So the pitching staff has to be ready to, to, uh, to, to take up the, the charge there. And uh, the good news for Mississippi state is as SEC series go, they've got what looks to be two of the better ones to get right against. Uh, Kentucky does come in next weekend. They are 17 and four. And they have won their first two SEC series. So I don't want to downplay the Wildcats, uh, but also it's a little different from the way Mississippi State has started SEC play, which was at LSU and and home to Arkansas to get Kentucky and then at Auburn the next two weeks is uh, a little bit of a softer uh, spot. But after that, they they better have gotten it right in those two weeks because then it's Ole Miss and at Vanderbilt. So. Got it. Got a lot to, to work with there. And then the, for the Hogs here going forward uh, th- this weekend, they they return home to Fayetteville. They get Auburn, which has lost its uh, its first two SEC series, and then they uh, they get a trip to Oxford that I'm already excited for um, that in, in two weekends. So. That's where they're going from here. I, I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to see how Mississippi State tries to bounce back. Arkansas just continues to fly and, again, looking looking very much like the best team in the country for me. If, uh, if, if, 
Kentucky wins that series in Starkville this coming weekend, two things will happen. One is we will definitely be revisiting conversations about Mississippi State. And secondarily, we are going to have to be paying more attention to Kentucky baseball. Uh, yes, if, if Nick Mincione goes in and wins that series, there are going to be a lot, a lot of questions being asked in Starkville. Indeed. All right, so we, uh, we're going to talk about some more of the happenings around the SEC in a second. But first, check this out. All right, Joe, Arkansas was the biggest story of the weekend for me, but the second biggest story, or if you're a little bit more on the, uh, on the draft side, then the college side, the big story was Jack Leiter throwing seven hitless innings against Mizzou, doing his best Johnny Vandermeer impression. He gets pulled short of a second straight no-hitter. He'd thrown 101 pitches against Mizzou on Friday night. Uh, he's pitching on one day's less rest than usual because this was a Thursday to Saturday series, and he also threw 124 pitches against South Carolina in that no-hitter, and also uh, Vanderbilt was winning 11 to nothing at, at the time. So all of that led to Tim Corbin uh taking lighter out of the game after seven, but still 16 consecutive scoreless innings. Um, he struck out 26 batters in that time. It's uh, it's remarkable what, what Jack lighter is doing. And Kamar Rocker had a good start for, for Vanderbilt on, on Thursday, but you know, lighter right now with this, uh, with this hitless streak is understandably getting the, uh, the, the, the lion's share of the attention for the doors right now. Let's just, I mean, let's just make an executive decision. Like, let's just send Jack Leiter into the major leagues right now. Let's just have, <laughs> like, you know, whatever we think the worst team is, whoever's drafting first overall, just let them pick, just let them do it now and just let them put put him on the roster now. And let's, like, clearly he has mastered this level. Like, it's just time for him to move on. Um, now, I don't think Vanderbilt would care very much for that, but that, that's, that's, that's his only next step here because it's, it's getting really kind of insane. And the combination of he and Rocker continues to, to impress a pace. And Missouri, obviously, is not going to be the stiffest test those two guys face this season, unfortunately, for, for Mizzou. It you know, looks look increasingly like a uh, rebuilding season there in Columbia. But so that, you know, there will be tougher tests down the road. But to do that two weeks in a row against anybody – at this level is obviously extremely, extremely impressive. So um, there was coming into the season, there was a little bit of talk of, um, and I'm not a, let me be very clear about this. Like I am not a draft expert, Teddy much more than I, Carlos much more, Carlos Quazo at BA much more than either of us at this point. Um, but there was kind of like this, this talk coming into the season where it was almost like, can we contrive the discussion about is lighter better than rocker but because lighter hadn't proven it because the 2020 season cancellation it felt difficult to make a good faith argument off the bat that lighter could go ahead of rocker and now you know given what they've done this season again i'm not privy to what the what the actual people who matter in this discussion are saying you know scouts and the like but uh, given what they've done on the field it seems like a much more live debate at this point I mean, my official take is that the Pirates shouldn't take either of them first overall because they don't have uh, use for a, a pitcher who can get outs in the big leagues in the next year or so. 
the Pirates rebuild is much deeper than that. So they, they should take uh, Vanderbilt commit Jordan Lawler uh, prep shortstop out of Texas. But uh, if they are to take one of these two guys, it's going to be impossible to go wrong. I would say uh, we just updated the draft rankings a week ago. So before the second of these no hitter attempts by lighter and lighter moved up to number two, but rocker remains number one. And if I was forced to pick between them, that that's how I would line it up to, you know, we're not doing it just based on our own opinions though. That's supposed to be a reflection of what the industry, uh, the, the best, the best, we best read we can get on the industry. So uh, it's going to, the debate is going to continue to rage all season long and uh, Vanderbilt fans are just going to continue to enjoy those two uh, pitching at, at the front of the rotation. That it, it's a, it's a really impressive feat for lighter. Uh, you're definitely right, Joe, though. Like Mizzou is, is far from the, the stiffest test he will, he will face this season. So uh, I think Jack lighter will eventually give up another hit this year. Uh, that's a, that's a hot take. I'm, I'm prepared to make it though. Uh, and, and maybe it'll even come this week, but we'll uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Joe, did did you ever play many baseball video games? Yeah, for sure. I yeah, I, I guess I was going to name them, but I guess I'll just let you continue. Go ahead. Well, so the, the reason I ask is because you know people talk about this kind of stuff as like video game type numbers. Mm. I didn't play that many baseball video games except for like backyard baseball, which. It's kind of a different well, it's classic, thing, really. Though. That's a classic. It, it is. Shout out to Kimi uh, Kawaguchi. Absolutely. Um, and of course, Pablo Sanchez. Sure. I, but like, I, I feel like calling what Lighter's doing video game numbers like a disservice because I don't think that you're throwing back-to-back no-hitters very often in, in baseball video games. No, not in modern games anyway. Like if you're playing, like even on MLB The Show now, which is the gold standard for for baseball games out there now, and I've reached a point in my life where I own a copy of MLB the show and I play it probably once every few months. So that, that's, that's where I'm at in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, there was a time not so long ago where I played it a lot more and the, the games have gotten so realistic and so good. And, and the show in particular is kind of um, for the average person um, difficult enough where, yeah, you're not, you're not really doing that anymore. I mean, there was a time where you could, mess with the sliders and mess with the settings. And you could probably pull that off because baseball games, if you go back to when I was a kid and started playing them, they, they were kind of laughably easy unless you really pushed the difficulty level to a point, but they, they seem to sometimes in my estimation, they seem to sometimes go from being like way too easy to way too difficult. And there wasn't like a really good happy medium in that. So there might've been a time where you could do something like this. I remember I played MVP baseball when I was in high school and I, I had one year, no, this is on the offensive side. I had one year where like my entire lineup hit 60 plus home runs. Um, and I was playing on a fairly high level of difficulty, but the game just, the baseball games had not developed to a point where they could properly reflect the difficulty of the sport. I feel like they're there now. So, you know, unless you're one of the high, high end, it'll be the show players of which I know there are some out there, but your average player is not, not doing this on, on MLB the show anyway. Well, we will see if Leiter can continue this uh, this week. Big series at LSU. Um, big series, really, for LSU. Having yeah, lost LSU their, their first two, <laughs> they're one and five in the SEC. They're uh, they're they're gonna. You don't want to corner a tiger, and that's what the Commodores are walking into this weekend. 
Yeah, that's quite the mismatch. So, like, it's a a cornered tiger. That's bad news. We can agree that's bad news. You don't want to – you're right. You don't want to corner a tiger. As as a a Commodore, I I don't think you're really equipped to deal with a cornered tiger. Yeah, but it's like if the Commodore is just a person standing out there with, like, his hat, you know, and, like, I don't know how (laughs) Commodores – in the, in the old school sense, like in the traditional sense, like how they arm themselves, like with a sword or with some sort of old gun or something. But like, what if they're on the boat though? What if they're on the ship? Because what's a tiger going to do to the ship? Like nothing. Right. So like, as long as you've got like, you know, something to, something to fend the tiger off with on the ship, I think you're in pretty good shape if you're, if you're, if you're on the ship, but the ship would also be run aground if you'd cornered a tiger because the tiger isn't out there the tiger is not stuck out there in the Suez canal with your ship. So <laughs> like, I don't know, like that we'd, we'd really have to like, like flesh out the exact scenario when the Commodore is facing off of the tiger to really understand who has the upper hand, because depend, I think it's very scenario dependent who comes out on top of that one. If it's middle of the ocean, tiger's got no shot. If it's on land Commodore by himself, Commodore's got no shot. So, um, interesting an interesting matchup it's all they say sports are all about matchups and i think that's true in this fake tiger commodore fight as well i i would definitely agree and uh you know let's uh let's transition here to some of the rest of the the sec um you know i mentioned here that lsu is now one in five uh that's because they just got swept at tennessee this weekend and and tennessee is now uh the, the volunteers put the tigers in the corner here so Maybe that bodes well for the Commodores. Anyway, uh, the Vols are up to number 10 in the top 25. This is the first time Tennessee has been in the top 10 of the Baseball America top 25 since 2006. Uh, Tony Vitello just keeps keeps on getting the the, the firsts, I guess, since uh, since that that great run of Tennessee ended in that in the mid 2000s. Uh, you know, he got Tennessee back to the tournament for the first time. They got ranked. They got now they're into the top 10 and they're just they are looking very impressive to this point in the season. They're now five and one uh, in the SEC and they, they've played really well against Georgia and against LSU to this point. And uh, I I don't know uh, exactly where they're going to end up. In the SEC East standings, the, the those standings are starting to get uh, a little little tight now. As not only did did Tennessee sweep this weekend, but South Carolina swept Florida, and uh, you know it, it's making for a pretty interesting race there, at least behind Vanderbilt. We'll see if any of them can can hang with Vanderbilt. But to be the at least the the second best team in the East right now, just where Tennessee is, uh, I, I think that's a uh, it's a very impressive start to the, this this season. It's been so sneaky too. We talked about that in our top twenty five meeting last night. They still haven't lost a series. Their one series split was a four gamer with Indiana State, which looks looks pretty at the time. We thought like oh, but looks pretty good now. Um, that's certainly nothing to hang their their heads about. They've also gotten it done and just kind of. I mean, it hasn't been easy. Let me put it that way because they're now without Jackson Leaf one of their best arms. He's, he's gone for the season. He suffered a hamstring injury um, early on in the season. He only appeared twice at the time. And I guess it, it just now has been confirmed that he's going to miss the rest of the season. So he's one of their better arms. Chad Dallas at one point missed a start. Um, so they've had to kind of play around with the pitching side of it. 
but uh, they've, they've got it done there. Offensively, you know, I really like this position player group. Not a lot of it is hitting quite yet, though. When you talk about, you know, Max Ferguson is hitting below 250. Jordan Beck, who, who Tony Vitello told us in the podcast, could, thinks could be a first-round pick next season. He's hitting with some power, but he's hitting 214. And Connor Pavloni's not really hitting. Luke Lipsius isn't really hitting. Evan Russell's not really hitting uh, with, you know, as far as average goes. And so I think there's actually some upside for this team to actually get better as the season goes on. Now, they may have maxed out what they can do on the pitching side because when you lose pieces like that, now you've got it, it taxes your depth and they've done okay so far. And, you know, a freshman. Alice like, is back, it should be noted. Correct. Yes. I'm sorry. I should have been more clear about that. He just missed the one start. He's been back and he's been fine since then. Yes. I should have been more clear about that. But, you know, you lose a Jackson Lee and they, they haven't had him for a few weeks and it's been fine, but it's like, you know, will that eventually rear its head a little bit as Tennessee gets to the more difficult part of its SEC schedule? Cause it's also worth saying that, you know, Georgia and LSU, and I don't think we thought we'd be saying this about LSU, but LSU, maybe not the toughest test in, in the, in the SEC better than Mizzou, but you know, I mean, I George know. and LSU have won a total of three SEC games through two weekends. Right. So we'll, we'll just have to see, you know, um, if maybe that, that pushes Tennessee a little bit down the line. But as far as the offense goes, I think there's actually a lot of upside potential for this team to get better as the season goes on, unless it's just going to be those types of seasons where those guys aren't going to be as good as we thought they were. But it seems unlikely that those five guys who we all thought pretty highly of and who the coaching staff thought pretty highly of would all finish the season hitting below 250. So I think there's actually a chance that, that this offense gets a little better, perhaps as the pitching staff maybe, um, you know, comes down to earth a little bit because it does feel like maybe they're some of the on, on the pitching staff that, you know, is someone like a, you know, Blade Tidwell as a freshman, like how does he hold up? He's been excellent so far, but how does he hold up when the SEC schedule gets tougher and his innings get higher and all that kind of stuff. So maybe those two things come together, but you know, Tennessee has been really, really sneaky good so far this season. And I'm, I'm fascinated to see, how far they end up going. And I mentioned South Carolina swept Florida. It's the first time they've done that since 2006. And uh, that was a big, big time bounce back for the Gamecocks, who of course had two difficult weekends at Texas and at Vanderbilt. They went one and five in those games, uh, really were fighting it there, and then come back and get a big, big result against the Gators. And on Friday night, South Carolina had to come back twice. They were down going into the eighth inning and, and came back in that game. And then in extra innings, they got down again. Uh, Florida pushed ahead finally. And South Carolina came right back in the bottom of the inning and, and, and walks it off. And really, it felt like from there, that was kind of it for Florida. Uh, South Carolina really controlled the rest of the, the series and, you know, I mean, that says a lot about both teams. I feel like that, um, you know, South Carolina handled the adversity of, of being down, had the comebacks, and then, you know, took control over the last two days of the series uh, in Columbia. Yeah, we, we talked about these two teams quite a bit recently, so I'll, I'll be brief here, but it, it does feel like Florida just, you know, maybe this is the result that, that does it, but even if you think that, okay, maybe we had Florida gassed up a little too much in the, in the preseason, which by the way, you know, you and I were far from alone on, but even if you think, okay, yes, maybe we gassed them up a little bit too much. I don't know that we would have expected them to struggle as, as much as they have in a lot of cases. So maybe this is the result that shakes them out of it a little bit, but there just doesn't now, you know, I'll give a, a shout out to Nick Delatore who covers the Gators locally. You know, he tweeted a little bit yesterday about how, 
you know, that it's been an issue all season where it just doesn't feel like the team has a lot of juice. You know, there's just not a lot of energy. Um, you know, it seems like a team that, you know, and this is, this is me now saying that it seems like a team that maybe is a little bit shell shocked and is kind of not really sure exactly why it's not going the way they thought it was going to go and, and maybe needs to snap out of it a little bit. So uh, Florida has some, some things to figure out in, in South Carolina. This was exactly what they needed after a couple of, a couple of weeks where they took it on the chin as far as the record goes. But, you know, we talked about it on the recap last week about it feels like South Carolina hasn't really played that poorly. They just played two good teams in Texas and in Vanderbilt. And sometimes that kind of thing happens. So this was exactly what the doctor ordered for them, for sure. Well, Florida has to shake out whatever the issue is immediately because they returned home to face Ole Miss. And Ole Miss looks like a freight train. The Rebs went to Tuscaloosa, swept a series that they had to come back in game one. Um, they were, they were down and then they, they just roared to life in the ninth inning against Alabama. And much like the Gamecocks, they didn't look back the rest of the way. Uh, they're six and zero in the sec for the first time in more than 50 years. Uh, there's a little bit of, complexity about exactly when the last time they were 6-0 in the SEC was, but it, it's been more than 50 years is the point. And, you know, they've done it at home against Auburn and at Alabama. And we can talk about how good either Auburn and Alabama end up being, but I think that Alabama still is a pretty good team that's just happened to play two of the best teams in the, not only in the country, but in their own division to, to this point of the season. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, Ole Miss got Doug Nikhazy back this weekend. Gunnar Hogland and Doug Nikhazy give them as good of a one-two punch as anyone in the country. And honestly, like, I mean that literally. Like, come at me, Vandy fans. Like, I, I really think Hogland and Nikhazy are not that far off of Rocker and Lighter. Um, I, I, I know statistically it doesn't look like that right now, but, like, I don't think they're truly that far off. Uh, Ole Miss's pitching staff is not super deep, but like we talked about how Arkansas doesn't have starters that it's really looking to get six, seven, eight out of. Uh, well, Ole Miss does. They're they're looking to ride Hogland and Nikhazy, and if they can do that, uh, they don't need their bullpen to be insanely deep. They've got some fine arms out there, uh, but this is this is really a case where they're a little more traditionally built. It's about the it's about the starting pitching, getting them to the key relievers, and they do have some high end offensive players that are that are going pretty well right now. And I, I'm very interested to see how they do at Florida this weekend. Uh, you know, really, it, it should not just be a discussion between Arkansas and Vanderbilt as SEC favorites. Ole Miss has to be included. They are. They're right there with those two other teams, I think. I think Gunnar Hoagland being as good as he's had, as he's been this season is really kind of one of the the underreported things in college baseball because he's been incredible. Like he's really, you know, Ole Miss the last couple of years has had a fairly flat rotation. And by flat, I mean, you could kind of wonder like who, you know, who is their Friday guy really? Like then Casey pitches on Friday, but is Hoagland better maybe? And then, you know, you had Derek Diamond in the mix last year. And now it really does feel like, you know, and part of this was Nikhazy has missed a couple of weeks, but you look at what Hoagland's doing and it's like, oh, he's, he's probably the best guy here. Like, and, and he's on another level right now, but I uh, came in the weekend leading the country in strikeouts. I don't know if that's still true necessarily, but 
I haven't looked at the stats since they've been updated, but 65 strikeouts in 37 and two thirds innings is uh, checks notes pretty good. And yeah, so now I think with the Casey being back and healthy and he threw the ball really well over the weekend, that's a really dangerous one, two punch. Obviously Derek diamond is really, really talented. He's been pretty solid this year. And I think, one of the, the big developments is when Nikhazy was out, they put Drew McDaniel into the rotation and he really acquitted himself pretty nicely. And now he becomes a really big weapon where you could use him like they did last weekend, where he comes in in relief and gives you a long relief outing. He could spot start if you decide, okay, let's flip diamond and McDaniel or what have you. Um, you know, you could use him probably three, you know, two or three times over a weekend in shorter stints. Like he's, you know, out of necessity kind of got pushed into a really big role and did pretty well. And so now you probably have a pretty high level of confidence in him being able to take on whatever role you feel like is best for him moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say that, you know, what Ole Miss would want is for Hogland on Fridays to give them as much as they can probably go straight to Taylor Broadway to close out a game and then do a similar thing the next day with Nikhazy, maybe double up on Broadway or maybe look to someone else to try and finish that game. And like, then you could have Diamond and McDaniel uh, piggybacking effectively on a Sunday, or if, you know, Hogland or Nikhazy has a shorter start this week, that's what Nikhazy did. He only went five. It was his first week back after missing two starts. McDaniel comes in with four behind him and they combined to shut out Alabama. So I, there's a lot of things you can do with a weapon like McDaniel right now. And uh, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how Mike Bianco uses him going forward. You know, the uh, Ole Miss will be in really good shape moving forward. If who wins the SEC title and who wins the national title comes down to who has the most players with the last name Baker on the roster. Uh, they have three <laughs> unrelated guys, with the last name Baker, they have Kale Baker as we know, uh, you know, first base DH power hitting type and two pitchers, uh, Cole Baker and Luke Baker, who also, by the way, where the numbers one number apart, 43 and 44. So look, if that ends up being the deciding factor and what a world we would live in, like Ole Miss is in really good shape with three Bakers on their roster. It's uh, it's the new money ball. It's they, a shame they, that they, they found, they found a niche they've exploited it. Same they're not actual bakers, because then that would, that would have some extra utility where it's like they could bring scones to the Sunday, you know, you're coming out for a Sunday afternoon game, they could bring scones to like batting practice, you know. You, you know who is an actual baker and pitches pretty well is Lucas hmm. Giolito. Really? Yeah. There was a, there's a story when he was, I think he was still at the Nationals. The Washington Post did a story about how like one spring training he got really into baking. I love, I see, I, I declared to some friends of mine recently, which is a like, don't tell people you're going to do stuff unless you know you're really committed to it. I told friends like a year ago that I was going to get into baking and like I did not. And now they've never let me forget it. Like every time I talk to them, they're like, what have you baked recently? And they know the answer is nothing, but like it, you know, it's probably better for my health that I don't bake frankly. So I mean, there, there are silver linings for sure. <laughs> well, speaking of Lucas Giolito, let's head out West uh, to a school that he was once committed to uh, UCLA looking pretty good here. As the Pac-12 uh, season continues, they last week beat Arizona. This week, they go cross town and beat Southern Cal, who, if you listen to the preview podcast, you know, had kind of quietly started to play a whole lot better over the last few weeks. And they, they took a game uh, on Friday night off of UCLA, but then UCLA comes back, wins the series pretty solidly. 
that was a significant win for the Bruins. Also significant was Arizona winning its series against Oregon. That was a fascinating contrast in styles with Arizona's powerful offense against Oregon's pretty darn good pitching staff. And Arizona comes out on top, but Oregon's offense acquitted itself uh, decently well. And uh, I would say right now it, it's pretty clear through two weekends of Pac-12 play that Arizona is like two pitchers short, that there is a very strong delineation between the first 18 to 23-ish innings of a series and the last like somewhere between four and nine Uh they are they're a couple pitchers short of being able to truly cover a weekend against premium Pac-12 competition, which is what they have played to this point in UCLA and Oregon. So the fact that Arizona comes out of it at three and three, uh, looking pretty good there for the Wildcats. Also out on the Pac-12 this weekend, Arizona State's pitching staff went absolutely nuts against Washington State, shut the the Cougs out twice. And that's a Brian Green team in year two of Brian Green as as the head coach. And he's one of the better hitting coaches out in that part of the country and uh, or throughout the country, truly. But, uh, you know, so for Arizona State to do that, they've they've quietly, maybe not so quietly. I don't know. They've they've been putting together a really nice pitching team all season long, which is remarkable given the way that the team had been built the last couple of years and, and what they had lost offensively for the pitching staff to step up the way it has, especially in the face of several key injuries has been, uh, has been very impressive. And then Oregon state, uh, they throw a no hitter against Washington on Friday night, Kevin Abel leading the way in that one. Uh, they won the second game. They're finishing up that series today due to some inclement weather. If Oregon state finishes sweep, they will be in first place in the pac 12 at five and one, uh, in what looks to be a, uh, a pretty stout conference race uh, that's not insignificant as, as Oregon state looks to uh, looks to compete there for a PAC 12 title. I think, uh, I think we can say the PAC 12 is good this year. Like, I think it's an up year for the PAC 12 and full on good. I, I, I would endorse. However, I would also say Joe that you've heard me say this before, but it is a fully closed system out on the West coast. Mm-hmm. And that is confusing me to no end because Almost no one in any of the conferences out there has played anyone outside of the four or five West Coast conferences. Yeah, that is going to be weird. It's uh, I don't I I don't envy slash am fascinated by the selection committee when it comes to when they're going to have to make those types of decisions about teams in the West Coast because it's really just going to be being a closed system. You're not going to get comparison points for most teams. Arizona is actually one that gives you a little because they did go to and Oregon state that tournament, Oregon state also gave you a little. So, um, but by and large, yeah, you're just not going to get that as you would normally Arizona quickly on them. I mean, they, they <laughs> I made this comment, uh, on our, I think it was in our top 25 discussion last night that Arizona is kind of the Georgia tech of the West where Georgia tech is in a similar place where, you know, you feel pretty good about like the first two thirds of a series. And then like the last third, you're just kind of trying to hang on for dear life. And, and trying to, 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 to cobble enough innings together to get it done. And I think in that way for Arizona, maybe to a greater degree than George Tech, but I don't know. I, I don't know if I actually believe that, but now that I've said it, but Arizona, certainly, I think it's going to be important for them to keep it up because playing at home in regionals is, I think, really important for that team because it puts you in a place where maybe you don't feel comfortable. Critical. 
with every four. Like if you get Sac State as a four, you might want to be a little careful. But if you get a four that's an auto bid that is a little bit weaker, that wasn't the conference's best team, but they just happened to get hot at the right time, you, you know, that whatever, you know, what I'm, what I'm getting at there. Like maybe you can play around with your pitching a little bit to where you don't have to use Chase Silseth and, and whoever else you trust on day one. Uh, that could really set them up for success. Um, of course, you know, do you trust them to you know, the, the, the back end of your guys? Do you trust them to, to win game one of a regional? Cause of course, if you lose that now you're in real trouble because you're not built to come back through a regional. So it's just going to be really important that Arizona keeps it up and gets into a position where they can host because they need to be in a position where they can call their own shots in terms of how they want to set up their pitching in a regional. And when you're a two, you just can't, you can't do that because you're, you're, you've got tough games right out of the gate, like as a, just basically as a rule. So um, yeah, UCLA, <laughs> I mean, they win that series and there were some positive things. Like I, I'm pretty comfortable saying now that Zach Petway appears to be back like to his version of himself where he's just kind of like carving up teams without dominating them. Like that's just kind of his thing. So that's good. I mean, that is definitely a, a positive step for them. You know, JT Schwartz continues to hammer the ball, like getting him back in the lineup has, has been a big deal. Um, but that said, you know, they, they still, I mean, this sh probably should have been a sweep. I mean, they, they're, they're up four one on Friday and USC scores four runs to walk off with a five, four win the winning run coming home on a Matt McLean throwing error. And it just was so, typically 2021 UCLA that that's how they lose that game and, and credit to them for coming back and winning that series the way especially the way they did because on Sunday it just wasn't really even close but even in winning a series against a rival team that we think is you know is, is showing signs of, of trending towards being a good team they still weren't able to like not trip over their untied shoelaces on the way to getting that series win so it, it still has not been easy for UCLA by any stretch of the imagination. UCLA right now is fielding 973 as a team, which is totally fine. You want to be around 975 um, generally. Most of the errors on it, the, they've made 21 errors as a team. A third of those are Matt McLean at shortstop. And a lot of the questions that professional scouts have about Matt McLean involve what position is he? And, you know, I don't know what the answer for UCLA is at shortstop. If they wanted to move McLean off, they have several players who have the ability in theory. Um, but, you know, first of all, th that would be a big move if John Savage made it. I am not suggesting they need to make it at all because again, you have to look at the, like who, who else is it going to be? And then what is that going to do to the rest of the team? What's that going to do to McLean if, if you were to make it? Um, but that that's a glaring thing. I, I look to UCLA consistently to be one of the best fielding teams in the country. 973 is not that. And if the problem, if, if the problem is that a third of the errors you've committed are coming from your shortstop, like that's uh that, that's pretty significant too. So maybe McLean can clean this up. Like I haven't gone through and watched all seven of his errors uh, to know precisely what's going on there. Uh, but that is, that is something to watch going forward that, you know, we talked at the top of this podcast about how good Arkansas is defensively and just how big of an advantage that can be for a team. 
if you're on the, the flip side of that is if you're shakier than you typically are and you're a pitching led team like UCLA is, then, you know, that's going to lead you to some losses. And that's what happened on Friday night. They, they just got snake bit by that. And it's not the first time it's happened this year. Uh, it, it's not the, the biggest thing that's, that's wrong with UCLA. That's not why they lost two series to this point, but it is something to, uh, to look at going forward. The, 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 the PAC 12 race now is very impressive. There are eight teams in the PAC 12 that are 500 or better. I'm prepared to tell you that UW is probably not going to do much in the PAC 12 this year. They're 0 and 5. Washington state is one in five, but you know, it's, they've played really good teams to this point, uh, but they're probably not going to contend. And Utah also probably not going to contend the rest of these eight teams. I don't know who's going away. Like maybe USC fades. Like maybe this was a little bit of fool's gold that they got hot here uh, at, at through, through this stretch over the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, maybe, maybe Cal, maybe, you know, I, I don't know, but, but these eight teams, like they, they seem pretty legit. And I don't know that anyone is so far ahead of the, the group. Like I think Oregon's a really talented team. UCLA is really talented. I think Arizona's really talented, but are they really that much better than Oregon state, Arizona state, Stanford? Like, I don't think so. So I think this, this should be a, uh, a really fun race in the Pac-12 and not a season where somebody wins the Pac with like 24, 25, even 27 wins, uh, like we saw Oregon State do uh, in 2017. And UCLA has has certainly run up uh, Pac-12 win totals north of like 23 over the last few years. Yeah, it's, it's as excited as I've been for the whole of the Pac-12 in a while, I think. And, you know, you talk about, you know, what, you don't know which one of these teams are going to go away. I'm with you. And there's always reasons you can even for the teams you, you think might fall back, there's reasons to, to, um, you know, kind of counter that with, you know, a team like Cal, it's like, well, you know, they've been playing fairly well without Grant Holman and now Grant Holman is back, you know, and he, he makes their pitching staff a little bit better. And, and USC's already six games into their PAC 12 schedule. So they're a little bit further along, like, and they acquitted themselves pretty well against UCLA the first couple of days. So like they, they clearly didn't, it wasn't that they didn't belong on the field. So, you know, Stanford, like, still a pretty young team, but, you know, they're also 14 and three now and, you know, won a couple of games against Fresno state over the weekend when their original series was canceled due to COVID. Um, so yeah, I, I'm extremely excited to see how this plays out. I, I'm going to spend more time being mad that I can't get Pac-12 network this year than I frankly ever have for that reason. Yeah, that is uh, that is a fair assessment. That's where they parked uh, the crosstown rivalry in LA, which is probably where it belonged, but still makes it, uh, makes it a little harder on, on those of us out east. All right, Joe, the uh, the Conference USA slate started this weekend, and I know that's one that, that you were eagerly anticipating, and I was very interested, especially in the Louisiana Tech Southern Miss series, two of the conference favorites going at it in Hattiesburg. Louisiana Tech comes out with a series win, and for me has emerged as not only the clear-cut favorite in Conference USA, but also a very legitimate dark horse hosting candidate. I don't think the sky's falling for Southern Miss. I think they're still in this, but, you know, like we talked about on the preview podcast, Southern Miss is, uh, you know, they're really fighting it offensively. And until that gets solved, I'm, I'm going to have 
my, my doubts uh, about the Golden Eagles in, in terms of competing at the top end of this league. UTSA looked fantastic against Rice in, uh, I don't know, is that a revenge spot for Patrick Hallmark, who, who spent so many years as Wayne Graham's assistant at Rice and then didn't really get, uh, get much of a shot at that job? Um, and then Old Dominion looked really good uh, against Florida International. They go 3-1 and one on the weekend. FAU swept, no surprise there. And Charlotte, which was down a couple of key players this weekend, um, they go and beat Western Kentucky. Came close to a sweep in a truly wild game uh, on Sunday, but Western Kentucky came away with like a 17-16 or 16-15 victory. Uh, you know, just one of those, they're, they're playing four games in these weekends in Conference USA, and uh, pretty clearly Charlotte and Western Kentucky had did not quite have the pitching for that that fourth game. But an entertaining weekend of baseball around this conference. Yeah, I think we're going to see a decent amount of that in Conference USA. Now, they are playing two sevens as the doubleheader, but still, that means you're only losing four innings total, which is not all that many when you're considering four-game weekend. But It's still five extra innings in a league that, like, isn't super-duper known for its pitching to begin with. Exactly, yeah. You're, you're going to be asking, like, it's one thing, like, Southern Miss can handle it, La Tech can handle it, Charlotte can probably – like, there are teams that can handle it. Obviously, Rice from 10 years ago could have played eight-game weekends and probably been fine, but, like – for the most part though, like these, these teams are not like just built to be able to handle that many innings. That'll be something to, I think there's going to be a lot of ugly, ugly Sundays in conference USA. I think that's just going to kind of be, kind of be the way that it, uh, the way that it is. I I don't know if it's a revenge situation for, for Patrick Hallmark going to rice and doing that, but I will tell you that there are rice faithful that are feeling some type of way about the fact that Patrick Hallmark came in with UTSA and, and took three out of four against against rice uh considering rice's struggles this season so i'll, I'll uh, and emphatically I'll took three out of four like run ruled them on friday night the rest of the weekend didn't go a whole lot better for the owls yeah yeah so uh yeah good weekend for utsa no doubt about that you know um i think louisiana tech you, you come out feeling feeling if it's possible you come out feeling even better and, and to your point southern miss i think is still in this southern miss played pretty well could have won friday's game uh, you know, had two guys in scoring position on Friday down a run. So one hit there and that, that game is completely different. So I don't want to, you know, uh, bury Southern Miss here because I do think they've got to run. And then the offense was a little better over the weekend. They've gone from hitting, I think it was 208 as a team to 220. Uh, so that, you know, they, they were a little bit better offensively over the weekend and certainly facing CUSA pitching, as we talked about, over four games will, will help those numbers anyway. But what's interesting about La Tech is, you know, they came in with three guys in the rotation they'd been rolling with and, you know, Jonathan Fincher and Jarrett Worf and Ryan Jennings. And, you know, they needed to add the fourth guy. And so the fourth guy ends up being Cade Gibson, who had not been, he basically been their midweek guy. But when you look at what he's done, I mean, he's the guy who pitched them to a win against Ole Miss and held Ole Miss to one run on five hits in that victory. And then he comes out against Southern Miss and throws a complete game shutout on three hits. And so somehow Southern Miss, a team that, was already pitching it extremely well from a starting rotation standpoint, like suddenly actually looks a little bit better now, even if that's possible. So they, they seem to have maybe even gotten stronger there, but to win three or four on the road against Southern Miss is, is a big, big deal. So they're still on track. You know, we, we talked about, we kind of hinted at the fact that, Hey, if this team does something really special in CUSA, like hosting is not off the table. And so they, they stayed on track with what they needed to do there. I'm fascinated by, FAU and, and Charlotte, they're going to play this coming weekend, and I'm hoping to get down to Charlotte to see a couple of those games. You know, FAU continues to, 
you know, FAE does this every year where it's like they, they have some fits and starts and they, they play well in CUSA and they end up, you know, kind of back in the postseason race. I, I'm not going not to be shocked if that ends up being the eventuality here. Charlotte is fascinating, too, because it's a it's a talented team. And, you know, I told you this offline last night that Charlotte is as much of a science experiment as really any team I can think of in college baseball recently. And some of that's been exacerbated by the fact that in this season, they were able to bring back every team was able to bring back so much of its previous roster because of eligibility relief. So, you know, they, they brought back a lot of guys. They added a massive recruiting class on top of that. They did, they did what they did in summer ball with their pitchers, sending them off to train in, in St. Louis at a, at a private facility. They're, you know, the best position player is David McCabe, a Canadian freshman. Um, so it's just a really interesting mix of guys. And, um, you know, I think, that's just going to be a fun story to follow if this works um, because they're really talented and it's just a really interesting roster. And um, I'm fascinated to see where it ends up kind of regardless. And so conference USA has taken some, some lumps in the last few years, Uh, certainly not having a team like what rice was 10, 15 years ago is certainly part of that. They don't have that tent pole team that's propping the rest of the league up anymore. Um, but outside of Southern Miss having some really good years recently, there really hasn't been a lot to hang your hat on in, in Conference USA. And this year might be a year where they get back a little bit. Uh, that that top five in particular are all tra- plus Southern Miss, which you know now in the standings is further down, but it's clearly one of those top teams. Those five teams are all tracking in a place where I think they could be in the mix to get in the postseason with a few weeks left. Not all of them will end up in the mix, just that's the way that math is going to work. But I do think it's going to make for a fun race down the stretch and you know, this could be a year where CUSA has been more like a a two-bid league um, pretty much steadily. It's never really dropped down to being a true one-bid league. It's also not really challenging to be three or even certainly not four. And this could be the year where it challenges to to do that kind of thing. Um, It could still be a two-bid league that's on the table, but I think it's, the league is better than that just on its face. Yeah, I, um, Again, we don't want to read too much into RPI yet. I'm a little concerned for FAU, though, just as a Florida-based Florida based team with an RPI of 96 after one week of conference play. That's not optimal. It's If you look, if you pull it, if you go under the hood with FAU, I, I also don't fully understand why it's that way. So maybe it'll correct a little bit. And obviously the best remedy to that is just winning a whole bunch of games. So we'll see where they go from here. But, you know, LaTeX, outstanding shape right now. ODU in solid shape. But if you lift the hood on that, it, it'll it drop a little bit, I think. And Southern Miss is pretty eternally like a bubble team. And I don't, don't really understand why they can't get their RPI a little bit better. Uh you know, except for that one year where they hosted and what was that 17? Um, they, they haven't really been able to elevate themselves into, into that level. But, you know, I, I, I do think this is clearly a better Conference USA. And yeah, I mean, three bids sure seems like it, it should very comfortably be on the table. Uh, and we'll see, we'll see which teams emerge here. But strong weekend for LaTeX. Um, Old Dominion continues to impress, and uh, I'm I'm intrigued to see what happens out east because I feel like out west, you know, I I don't want to rule Southern Miss or UTSA out of this race by any means, but it it, it sure seems like LaTeX is the most complete team out there right now, and 
uh, you know, we'll see, it's one weekend. I don't, I don't want to get over my skis here, but yeah, they're the clear favorite for me and, and, and we'll see where they go from here. But in the East, I don't know how you pick right now between FAU, Charlotte and ODU. Like right now, you know, if you made me pick, I would say FAU, but that has as much to do with just the experience as anything else. I don't know which one of those teams is truly more talented than the others. And, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll just have to, to wait and see how it plays out. And, and this weekend, that's a, that's a fun one out in Charlotte. Charlotte and, and, and ODU will, will probably figure it out on their own because of a scheduling quirk. There's one point coming up here in a few weeks when they play each other eight consecutive times. They're just flip-flopping the home and away there. So uh, I suppose they could split four and four there, but there will be an opportunity for one of those two teams to separate itself from the other with those eight straight games against each other. That is an interesting quirk. So like, so LaTeX has, has won this series three out of four, but they get, they, they return this to, to Rustin later in the season. So yeah, the, the way CUSA went about doing its scheduling this year, they, they split into divisions because of COVID to limit travel. And like, they're also, um, you know, they're not doubling up in, in every divisional opponent case, they're doubling up in close opponent cases. And so for ODU and Charlotte and for UTSA and Rice and um, FAU and FIU and um, La Tech and, and, and Southern Miss and whatever the pairing is that I didn't mention there, uh, you know, th- those teams are going to see an awful lot of each other. And, you know, fortunately, kind of for us as observers, that means we get another another look at this La Tech and uh and southern miss series but you know i don't know i don't know how eager the bulldogs are to you know okay like we southern miss has won either the regular season or tournament title in conference usa seven of the last 10 conference usa seasons latek goes and like they do it in hattiesburg i don't know how eager they are to like have to do it again like they'll they'll take the opportunity i'm sure and you know be happy about it and whatever but like Truly, I don't. I would just as soon be like, "All right, we're done with the Golden Eagles. Like, let's see them in the in the tournament, maybe." And if not, like, "Whoa, boy, that was that was a tough series. Like, I'll see them next year." Instead, they they got a they got four of these in the Love Shack coming up down the line. Yeah, that's certainly not uh, not ideal for for padding the, the record. You know, if, if if they're talking about doing something really special like hosting, though, I guess there is that. You know, if you're if, yeah, you're, and there, there's definitely that argument that like. Hey, if they win three more against uh, Southern Miss and have six wins uh, against Southern Miss, like that's going to look real good on a resume probably. Yep. Which brings me to just my final point on this too, is one of the big things for CUSA this year is that there are fewer RPI anchors out there. Um, it's been a league that's oftentimes been saddled with like three or four teams that are just truly RPI anchors and uh, not quite as much of that this year, at least so far. So we'll have to, um, you know, one of those RPI anchors, frankly, is is Rice, which is something that seems unfathomable from where that program was not that long, you know, even as recently as four or five years ago. Like it, it you know, that that program had taken a step back clearly, but it wasn't um, wasn't certainly was far from an RPI anchor in Conference USA, but that's where they that's where they are right now. Yeah, they're two forty three right now. I don't really understand that. They're twelve and twelve. Um, I get that it's not an exciting 12 and 12, but they're still 12 and 12. So I think that'll normalize a little bit as we go here, but something to watch. Absolutely. All right, Joe, we, uh, we haven't really talked to any ACC. There was a lot of interesting action, a lot of upsets that in a normal uh, or in any week prior to this one, we probably would have spent an awful lot of time on the ACC, but 
just with the Pac-12 and the SEC and Conference USA getting going and having some intriguing stuff, you know, I, I, I am also just so used to the idea that the ACC teams are all going to beat up on each other. ACC Wheel of Destiny update, I can connect 12 of these teams through the transitive property. Really, I'm just waiting for Virginia to win a series at this point. I, I do say that, that that is once NC State completes its win in game two against UNC. They're suspended in the eighth inning. Maybe UNC will come back. They're trailing by at least five runs, though. So if they come back, great story for them later this afternoon. But if uh, if NC State completes that, I, I can complete 12 links in a in a chain of uh, of transitive property for the ACC, uh, which pretty pretty impressive to this point. Uh, but Virginia Tech sweeps uh, at Pitt. Pitt's first home home weekend as a ranked team did not go great. Or first home weekend as a ranked team in the ACC did not go great for the Panthers. Virginia Tech comes out with a big sweep. Wake Forest gets off the mat. Uh, they get a really nice series win in Tallahassee. Uh, NC State beat UNC on, in game one, took this lead uh, in game two before rain showed up and pushed the, the finale and the, the completion of that game uh, to, to Monday. Clemson goes up to Boston and wins. And then the big one that we were looking forward to, Notre Dame and Louisville ends up with a split. Game three was canceled due to poor weather conditions Depending on who you talk to, though, like, could they have played on Sunday? I don't know, but I do know that Louisville practiced at Frank Eck Park after that stadium was canceled. Uh, so take that for what you will, but ultimately uh, it goes down as a split in the in the standings. Yeah, it's just mayhem. Honestly, there's there's no other way to put it. I mean, when you, when you talk about NC State, very on brand for not just NC State, but for in that rivalry, NC State gets off the mat and figures it out against North Carolina, but some of the early darlings in the ACC are starting to come back to the pack a little bit less. So Notre Dame, you know, they, uh, we, we didn't get that third game, but, but certainly they, they prove they deserve to be. They could have won the first two games. They won Saturday. They walked it off on Friday. They Notre Dame is one of the best defensive teams in the country. They played bad defense on Friday and it cost them against Louisville because you can't do that to beat Louisville. You have to play a good complete baseball game. Notre Dame couldn't do that, but if they just defend, the way they defended all year, they're in position to win that game. For sure. So you know, we've got some of the, the early darlings, a team like North Carolina coming back to the pack a little bit. You know, at the same time, you've got, you know, NC State maybe making a little bit of a move here. You know, even teams we haven't talked really at all about early on, like Duke are still just kind of treading water. You know, Wake is treading water a little bit. Clemson's playing a little bit better lately. Like here comes Clemson. Uh, it's, I think this is just it. Like maybe, you know, maybe Virginia never figures it out and they end up, you know, falling to the, the basement, which we will have to do a full accounting of at some point in the future. Uh, <laughs> now is not the time, but, uh, if, look, if, I already uh, apologized today for, uh, Arkansas. Like I'm not ready to admit anything more than I was wrong about Arkansas coming into the year. We don't, we don't need to get into the who's today. Yeah, I mean, we were both wrong about that one. And I think, you know, you and I were, were high on, on Virginia, but it's not like we were alone in thinking that team was going to be really good. So, I mean, again, we had we had company on that one. But I say all that to say, like, there are probably a, a team or who, maybe it's Boston College, which, you know, Boston College, we always knew there were pitching depth questions, but to not win the starts Mason, Mason Pelio makes, that's a real problem for BC. So maybe they end up falling. 
and being the one that, that finishes near the basement, but whatever it is, like, I just think we'll have one or two teams that maybe really aren't competitive and the rest of them are going to be right there. And this is, this is going to be life in the ACC. And um, I mean, it's gonna be fun to follow along the way. It doesn't really make for fun top 25 discussions, but that's no, nobody's problem, but, but me and you, I suppose. If we set aside UNC, which again, still has to finish its series, there are only four teams in the ACC that are more than two games or more than a game above 500, I should say. Louisville, Notre Dame, Georgia Tech, Virginia Tech, all are 600 or better winning percentage teams in conference play. Everyone else is hovering around 500. And then there are a few teams that are well below that, but uh, that's going to make for very interesting like we're, I'm, I'm not about to try and parse the ACC hosting race right now. Uh, it's entirely too early to do that, considering the way the conference is lining up right now. But just above 500 in the ACC is probably going to put you in the hosting race. So, you know, just that's uh, that's the kind of year it is. And that also is being exacerbated, again, by the fact that they're playing 12 conference weekends instead of 10. So uh, finishing 500 in the league is going to be pretty common uh, and you know more more impressive than it might appear just on its face of saying like oh it's a 500 ACC team like uh, they're going to be some pretty darn good 500 ACC teams this year like we often talk about in the SEC we don't talk about it quite as often in the ACC 500 in the ACC still gets you in the tournament but we don't we don't really see it the same way that like 16 and 14 is what like four teams in the SEC West are every year effectively and somebody has to win the division so like maybe one team has 17 uh the, the whole acc is basically going to be that yeah this year you're gonna have to throw some of this stuff out but remember remember that that one time when like finishing above 500 or above in your conference with regards to getting in the field of 64 really really mattered and until it didn't remember that what yeah there was uh there was that year that they decided that was the most important thing for anyone to, to do was to have an above 500 record in conference play. Um, the next year, it didn't quite mean that much, but they still do like you to show that. But yeah, I think in the ACC this year, that's just going to be completely ignored because, uh, yeah. you know, with, uh, with 12 conference weekends in ACC play like that, that's, that's an awful lot. All right, Joe. Um, I think that, uh, that just about wraps it was there. Is there anything else that, that caught your fancy around the country this weekend? I will say that just generally, we're at, we're at the time of year where, for my own purposes, I'm really thankful that we know enough about some of these teams now. Like, I was able, and I'm always going to be inclined to be the type of person who's like, let me sit in front of this LaTeX and Southern Miss series and watch it. However, that is made a little bit easier by the fact that we're now six weeks into it. And early in the year, there is so many games. I mean, there are always so many games going on on the weekend, but we're now far enough along that I can confidently understand which ones I don't need to pay that much attention to. Whereas early in the season, like first couple of weeks, even up through like the you know week before this last one, I still feel like I need to like keep a wider berth. Now it feels like I've been able to narrow my focus a little bit. And that's been kind of nice. I'll be honest. One other thing I wanted to highlight that's definitely a good point. One other thing I wanted to highlight is uh, Youngstown State won a series against Wright State. And I think both Joe and I last week wrote about how great Wright State was because they won 12 straight Horizon League games to open the season. And like, we're kind of like obliquely talking about like, what if Wright State just went undefeated in the Horizon League? Well, Youngstown State went out and won three out of four against them. 
so shouts to the Penguins. They are um, they're six and six in, in the horizon now, and uh, they hadn't run a, won a series against Red State since uh, 2015. So again, shouts to the Penguins. The three strikes curse. There you go. All right, that's going to do it for us. We covered a lot of ground here today on the Baseball America College podcast. There's even more ground that we're covering over on the website. You can check out everything over at BaseballAmerica.com, and we'll have plenty more throughout the week leading up to uh, another exciting week of games. Notable this week, I think, is that um, the series, many series are going to start on Thursday because it is Easter weekend coming up, so a lot of, a lot of places try and uh, – finish finish up before sunday so uh just be aware of that as you're anticipating this week's rhythms that things are things are going to be accelerated by a day and in a lot of cases uh we will be back here on the baseball america college podcast probably on thursday morning as a result maybe wednesday afternoon i don't know joe and i still have to figure that out uh but you don't have to worry about it if you are subscribed because then it just goes straight into your phone so you can uh look for the baseball america podcast uh wherever you get your podcast be that stitcher spotify apple podcasts uh, you can find us rate review subscribe we appreciate it all and you can follow us on twitter i'm at ted cahill joe is at joe healy B.A. We want to thank Rapsodo for presenting the Baseball America College podcast and you all for listening it, listening to it. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll see you next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.